Ahoy! It's your boy, and today is Sunday, January 28th. And it's interesting that I'm recording this today because the thing that's kind of been top of mind for the last couple days, which I admit I hadn't really thought about, I'm surprised the idea's coming to me this late, but as I'm getting ready to take off for Taiwan for a couple months, I was thinking, how the hell am I going to keep doing this? <laughs> um, uh, I mean, obviously I have a way to record my voice and keep sort of, uh, you know, shoving that message in a bottle and throwing it out into the, the void of the internet uh, in some fashion. I can always use my phone or something like that, but um, maybe I'm just like a sticker, a stickler for um, quality or something like that, but the idea of just uh, recording my voice straight into my iPhone, I just think the audio quality would suck, and um, I don't know. The thing, though, that's, I, I mean, it's sort of, as I started thinking about this, something else kind of happened concurrently. Um, i you know, of course, I watch a lot of movies. We talk about that a lot. But um, I also really like YouTube. And um, I always enjoy finding, like, different rabbit holes to go down. And I found this interesting channel. I think I'm finding it alongside a lot of other people because as I've watched their most recent videos, which have a fair amount of views, and I look back at their older videos, they don't. But I see a lot of the pinned comments or things like, wow, this channel is really blowing up. So whatever forces in the algorithm whatever forces in the, in the algorithm pushed this channel in front of me is, is obviously uh, sharing it with other people. But it's this uh, vlogger, this traveler named, I guess his name is Connor, but his channel is called Small Brained American. And I think it was some videos of him in Japan. And there were these kind of, uh, you know, GoPro, handheld GoPro kind of travel videos. But they they weren't like a lot of other YouTubers, which was like, uh, hey guys, this week we're going to do this or that, and they're edited, and the person's trying to be basically a TV host, and they do all these kind of wild edits and add all that kind of crappy chain smoker sounding music. Um, um, it was just a guy holding a GoPro and uh, just walking around. And uh, it was kind of, it's, it's surprising that that was really compelling for me. Uh, one, it was just seeing his time in Japan, and it reminded me that it would be very easy to do something like that in Taiwan. Um, and so I'm kind of flirting with the idea of, one, I mean, I could get like a maybe a cheap lavalier microphone or something, and I, I'm, sh I'm sure I could keep this going more or less in the format that it is currently. But I also thought that'd be really exciting for me to do that. So I'm really, I've been online kind of looking at, action cameras and uh, I, I don't want to invest a lot of money but get like a like a go like an older gopro or something like that and um i'm especially thinking that since I, I it's not something that i'll be able to edit while i'm abroad but i could certainly uh gather all the information or all the video and and all that sort of stuff and when i come back i mean i'm fairly i mean i i would be very surprised if i didn't end up going to china or at least getting accepted to go to grad school in china i'll put it that way and um um, when I come back, I would only have a few months to kind of wrap my life up here before I take off. But, um, I don't know. That just seems like, you know, in the midst of selling off my shit, <laughs> uh, that would be a fun way to spend my time is kind of editing that type of stuff together. So, um, yeah, I've been, I don't know. I've been excited by the idea. Um, I'm not sure if people would watch that. Again, it's, it's you know, it, it's sort of weird kind of coming from a place where I was doing music full time and was really uh, emotionally and kind of personally invested in kind of getting in front of as many people as possible. And, um, you know, my creative outlet has kind of transitioned to just kind of being this thing that I do every week and, uh, just sort of speak my mind and say whatever comes to my mind or whether that's entertaining or boring. I, I don't really try to, um, uh, judge it in that way. I just try to say what comes to mind and, you know, I'm not really sure that's the, th I'm, not, I'm not sure that that is most people's thing, but I think, you know, people who happen to find it and enjoy it, well, you know, it sort of finds who it needs to find, I guess, in that way. And I guess I was sort of um, interested in this person's videos in the same way, which is, you know, he's a pretty likable guy. And so if you just like hanging out and just sort of walking through Japan, or he really, the videos I watched, I've since gone back and rewatched a lot of his old videos, he's basically traveling from Ireland to Japan with a motorcycle, and he's going to, like, Ireland, Myanmar, Macedonia, uh, Vietnam, uh, and he sort of ends up in, in Japan, but kind of seeing his ups and downs and all the weird stuff that happens to him, because he's really, uh, 
you know, it's not like he uh, saved up a bunch of money. He's really kind of flying by the seat of his pants, and he ends up in some pretty strange places, and he's really just kind of open to the experience and stumbles on all sorts of weird stuff. Everything from, like, uh, he stumbles on a, you know, he's in India, which he absolutely hates, and you're seeing all his misadventures, and uh, at one point he's, like, just riding a scooter down the road in Myanmar, and some woman just flags him down and, and says, hey, come to this village. And he, she gives him a tour of this village, and he has this kind of really cool experience. And, uh, you know, he'll stumble on a wedding in Vietnam, and people are shoving rice wine down his throat and dancing and all that sort of stuff. And uh, it's just very unassuming. And uh, and so, yeah, it just seems like uh, that's something that I would like to try. The problem, though, and um, this is the thing, when I, when I think about, like, what's, like, a cheap camera I could buy that could still be good quality is what I, what I don't want to be is that ostentatious dude who's, like, traveling around in a foreign country who's, like, a tourist, and he has one of those, like, crazy selfie sticks, you know? I mean, if, you know, there, there's a... In, in some ways, it's one of those things that, like... Um, I don't know if... I, I mean, I, I certainly judge people who do that, and I hate them, but it's also one of these things, like, if I brought it into therapy, we'd probably have to circle around to the idea that, you know, the thing that you hate in other people is really the thing you hate about yourself. And if I judge someone for like drawing attention to themselves by walking through society with a big ass selfie stick on some Freudian subconscious level. It's really my jealousy at the fact that they can kind of walk through the world and exist in a way where they're not hyper sensitive to the judgment of other people in the same way that I am. So, um, you know, there might be something liberating in that, but I admit the thing that I'm really looking for is I'm looking for something very, very simple because I also, you know, it, just knowing that it would be like kind of a psychological slash emotional hurdle for me to kind of walk around and film stuff. Um, I just know that if it's too big a barrier, despite my best intentions, you know, I may, you know, spring for a hundred to, I don't know how much a camera would cost, hundred, two hundred dollars or something like that. And, uh, and then end up not doing it. I'd, I'd sort of end my time in Taiwan and not have anything to show for it. And then I'd have this crappy camera that I never use. So, I feel like if I could just find the right thing that I know is not going to be ostentatious and not going to draw a lot of attention, then um, that might be something I could do. And also, I sort of, you know, I used to do this thing for, um, I, I have to admit, I never really did it consistently for many years, but I do have a number of years where I sort of had committed and completed this thing called One Second Every Day, where I would just kind of go through my life. And I was filming a lot more video anyway. Um, when I, you know, I was just, you know, I was just capturing more media. I just think I lived more with my camera and just kind of shooting interesting things, not like kind of going around and vlogging or anything like that, but just, I would see something nice and I would shoot a video or, or something like that. And what the app would do would just sort of smash, uh, you could sort of select which second of each video you wanted to use, but it would just sort of smash this stuff together. And it just made for like an interesting collage slash scrapbook of your life. And it can be, I mean, as you start doing it, you you know, you do start to shoot things with this in mind. So it is kind of, I don't want to say, I don't know how to word it, except it is kind of a creative curation and, and that sort of stuff. But it is also this, you know, once, when, when you finally have the finished product, it's just this interesting retrospective. And I have one from a couple years ago um, when I did this tour with Matt Nathanson, or it, it happened to be the same year that I was doing this, but I also did a lot of traveling with my girlfriend at the time. And for some reason, I just sort of, it's, you know, I, I've since not really, I really don't post anything to social media anymore. I haven't for years. So that happens to be one of the, you know, when I shared this video, uh, from that year, that was one of the, uh, yeah, one of my more recent posts. So I happen to see it. And when it starts playing, you know, if I'm looking at my own Facebook page or something and it happens to start playing, I just sort of watch it often. And I've seen it dozens of times, but it's just an interesting artifact. It's an interesting thing for me. And every time I watch it, I tell myself that I should do it. And of course, we just had New Year's here. And I've, I've since told myself, like, you should be filming stuff and doing a doing a one. Because, because although it's not something I feel motivated to do now, it's a bit like, you know, what I do here, which is you know, every time I fire up the mics, I'm not really sure what's going to happen. And there's sometimes, most of the time, I'm always happy to have done it. It's a bit like working out, which is like getting on the treadmill is the hardest part. And you may not feel especially motivated to do it. But once you start doing it, it's never as bad as you thought it was going to be. And when you're finished with it, you're always happy to have done it. And 
you know, when I did the first 100 of these, you know, I, not that I, not that I have gone back and listened to them because I haven't, I haven't listened to any of them. Um, you know, but it's nice to have that kind of repository of stuff. And who knows, years from now, I'm, maybe I could mine it, uh, for something else. But I kind of feel the same way kind of committing to this process a second time. So the, the prospect of like traveling for three and a half months and not doing it doesn't mean I have to stop necessarily, but it, I do feel like, hey, I committed to doing another 100 of these and um, it would be nice to be able to continue doing that. But it would also be nice maybe to have something a little more visually compelling as well. Because I have to admit, like um, there was a period in my life where I listened to just audio, you know, um, podcasts. But um, that's not really something I engage with a lot. So there is a way in which I feel like this kind of personal journal, although I enjoy doing it, and actually, I'm gonna. I'm actually gonna connect two ideas, which is when I think about maybe starting to do this kind of video thing. You know, I maybe doing something like this has shown me I really have to think, put some thought into what do I think I'm actually going to do, because it's actually like a lot of things in my life. It's part creative, but it's also like exercise. You know, years ago I used to run a lot. And although that was good and I learned something about myself because I was, n I was not a physically active person for most of my early life at all. I didn't play really. I mean, I, I played some organized sports, but I was never into it. You know, I would do it for like a season or two and then and stop doing it. And, it. and it meant nothing to me. It was just something that I was sort of, you know, sub I, it's just one of those things that you do as a kid. And I was not into exercise and I was not into nutrition and all that sort of stuff. But I remember in my early 20s, I think, maybe around the time I quit smoking for the first time. But I started running. I And it was just a way to kind of prove something to myself. Because when I started training for this half marathon, it was like I would see myself running multiple miles. And that was just something that seemed like out of this world before. So, And I've had different chapters of that in my life. I've run a couple of half marathons. I've run this uh, thing called Ragnar Relay. It's sort of a, a long-distance relay race that you do over 48 hours. And when I trained for those things, I would run a lot. And that was very good. And, you know, I would say I was in the best shape of my life. I'll, I'll sort of switch. I, I, what I think has ac actually happened is I think I maybe looked the best to other people, meaning I was, you know, the thinnest I'd ever been in my life. But I also, like, when, especially when I did like that first half marathon, I was, I probably drank more daily in my life than I ever had. So, you know, I, you sort of have the appearance of health, even though maybe you're not actually living a healthy lifestyle per se. But what that experience proved to me is like, hey, you can run at an athletic level if that's something that you choose to do and commit to. However, every time I had an event, you know, every time the half marathon was over, I would always say, great, now I can go to this place where I'm just running 30 minutes a day and that'll be good and that'll be sustainable. But the truth is, is I never ran, you know, I would maybe keep it up or I would kind of start and stop, but it's not anything I could keep up consistently. And, um, you know, there's a saying that's like the best exercise is the one that you do. You know, it's fine to commit to keto or to commit to CrossFit or something like that. And maybe you'll be really into that for two and a half years. And that's not a bad thing. Even if you stop, that's not wasted time. It's like running. It's not like I regret the times that I ran. It's just when I evaluate, you know, what I feel motivated to do right now, it's just, it's definitely not running. And so it's strange when I look up and I see especially over the last few years, the only exercise I've been able to do consistently, uh, which means like 30 minutes a day for four to five days a week, uh, sometimes more, is just kind of calisthenic stuff. I like find these channels on YouTube and I just do that because it's like, it's not, you know, the idea of like when you're preparing for a half marathon, the idea of just like running nine miles in preparation for that, like that's just a huge bummer. But it's like, for me, 30 minutes is enough where I go, hey, it's not the thing I'm the most excited to do in my life, but I it's it's doable, meaning I can bring myself to do it. I've been able to do it very consistently. And then on top of that, I'll go and, you know, play some basketball or something like that. And actually yesterday I felt very good because it was actually kind of strange. I I've sort of mentioned I live in this cottage in the backyard of a of a of a house. And um I got a text from the person who's running it now. I call him my neighbor, but I guess we kind of live on the same property. But my neighbor texted me and said, hey, just be aware I'm going to be running the chainsaw to take care of that tree that fell in the backyard. And I was like, what? And uh, I sort of step outside and I'm looking and 
yeah, like two trees in our backyard had fallen over, like right outside my window. And I was like, holy crap, when did this happen? And he was like, oh, maybe like two or three days ago. And I had no fucking clue. So it just goes to show you how fucking clueless I am. We had two fallen trees in our backyard, which I never even saw. But I, I sort of offered to help, and he was kind of working with the electric saw, just kind of basically taking the first taking this thing down at the base, and then we were kind of taking off all the tree limbs and stuff. But I just sort of grabbed, just because I wanted to be helped. I didn't, just, didn't want to stand there and just like, uh, I don't know, uh, supervise the guy. I grabbed like one of these hand saws. And it's hard to describe, but it's like a kind of a curved blade, and it's like to take down tree limbs and stuff like that. So while he's got the electric saw and he's kind of handling the thick, you know, trunk kind of stuff, I'm basically taking all those and I'm like chopping them. I'm I'm like taking off all the branches. But that means I'm I'm I have nothing electric. I'm doing the physical labor. And after about two hours of this, I mean, I was just like I had I was completely drenched in sweat. My shirt was soaked through. But uh, but that was good exercise. Um. But why am I talking about this? I think I'm just talking about consistency. So, you know, with a personal journal like this, if it was about, and I did do this for a while, I admit, I I did shoot some video, but that was like, even when I started doing that, I think I only did that for, I don't know. I don't know if it was like 20 or 40 installments. I don't know. Um, <clears throat> no one watched them. Um, most of the you know, although I sort of upload this audio to YouTube, which goes on a web page, nobody listens um, to these entries there. Most people are listening on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, from what I can tell. Although I admit I, I haven't looked at the numbers since um, picking this thing up again. Um, but yeah, if it, if it was about, you know, doing it in front of a camera every day or doing something like that, I just, yeah, I just don't think that I would be able to do it as consistently. When I sat down to do this, I was like, you're just going to stick a microphone in front of your face and do it for an hour each week. And so far, we've done that really well. I don't think I've ever missed, I don't think I've ever missed a week. I know we've had a couple late things that were inadvertent because, uh, I, you know, like I said, I record this today and this gets sort of disseminated uh, at midnight. But sometimes I, I'll make a mistake and I'll, I'll sort of mess the time up for the for the scheduling. But um. Yeah, the idea of like, okay, well, if I want to start shooting some video stuff of my time in Taiwan, and then also looking ahead, I mean, I'm about to go to China for two years, so um, definitely be a lot of interesting content there. It's really going to have to be in a way that is, you know, not crazy. It can't be high production value. It has to be good quality, and it has, but it has to be easy. So, um, yeah, I'm going to spend some time uh, looking into that and thinking about that. And uh, I'll keep you posted. But short of that, I have to admit, I'm kind of in this place now as the time sort of wraps up. Well, to, the thing that really popped into my mind is, and it's kind of related to what I was about to say, but, you know, when, when school first ended, I had a couple of weeks where I had plenty of things to do. There were errands to run, and each day kind of had something uh, new to take care of, and I was able to kind of fill my time with stuff. Or at least feel like even though I'll spend the vast majority of my time relaxing because I'm, I'm sensibly looking at this time as like a vacation, <clears throat> there were things to feel productive that could be done during the day. This last week, maybe two weeks, I'm sorry, I gotta drink some water here. <clears throat> um, this last, sorry, <clears throat> something about the last couple of weeks when I've done this, I don't know if it's, um has to do with how sedentary I am, but... I'm finding speaking for an hour more and more difficult over time, and I'm, I'm not sure what that's about. Sometimes I tell myself, maybe I need to slow down or, or something like that, but I don't know if you can hear it in my voice, but I started off feeling very well, and now all of a sudden, it's like I feel my kind of throat drying out, and uh, it almost feels like it's getting a little scratchy. Um, but uh, I'm trying to say that although I had a, some things to sort of fill my time um, uh, for those first few weeks. Uh, I'm starting to not have a lot to do, and I'm kind of twiddling my thumbs. And I think part of it is the weather. I do have some of that seasonal affective stuff, although I'm embarrassed to admit it, but it just happens to be the case that when the weather gets rainy or overcast or there's not a lot of sun, I just, I just feel a shift in my mood. I just sort of go, man, why do I feel down in the dumps? And I go, well, the less sunlight. 
and really the only thing that kind of keeps me buoyed, I find, is if I do continue to exercise regularly, I'm able to, because if I, if the weather turns bad and I'm not being active, then it's like a recipe for, I don't want to say disaster, but I, I definitely feel like my, uh, my mood is impacted. Um, but why am I talking about that? Um, yeah, so I've been kind of twiddling my thumbs and, um, I've basically done everything I can do to kind of get my graduate school applications in order. And I don't want to sound ungrateful. I'm just, this is just something that happens to be the case, which is, um, I've had a little bit of trouble getting my recommend recommendation letters in. And, um, it's actually, it's actually, well, this is, uh, I don't know if I should go into this, but it sort of brings up something that kind of came up in, in therapy, which is, you know, one of my dispositions is I just sort of genuflect to everybody and sort of treat people as if they're doing me this huge favor. And it's not like writing, writing a letter of recommendation is, is it's, uh, it's a privilege and it's um, a gift. But my therapist tried to frame it in such a way, which is like, they're also, it's part of their job. You know, it doesn't mean that they have to, uh, they're not required to give letters of recommendation to people that they don't want to give letters of recommendation to. But, you know, it's not like they're uh, calling up a personal friend and uh, putting you in touch with the president of the United States or something like that. I mean, they've essentially written tons of letters of recommendation. They know you. It, it's just not a huge time investment. It should be something that's it, – it's a, it's a reasonable request, especially if you've demonstrated yourself to be a good student and this is a teacher, professor that you have good rapport with um, – and in my case, I, I, I believe that, that that is true. I mean, I basically ask two people who I've spent, I've had multiple classes with them. I would go to office hours all the time. I did very well in their courses and I, I have a relationship with them. So it's kind of a foregone conclusion that they would be willing uh, to write me a letter, of, or a letter of recommendation. And yet I've had a little trouble kind of getting it going. I had one professor who I was sort of following up with them each week and just never heard back from them. And then just kind of at the last minute, I had sort of told them what the, the due date was. I really had to follow up a few more times. And uh, it, the letter they ended up writing me, which they were kind enough to share with me, was very, very touching. And, uh, you know, it's one thing to just, you're sort of, I, I, and maybe this is my self-esteem or something, but I'm kind of expecting like a generic letter of recommendation. But it was very, it was detailed, it was specific, it was drawing on things that I completely forgot about our time together in classes where they were mentioning papers that I had written and feedback that they had offered and, uh, um, and also just kind of contextualizing their experience of me in the, their entire history of teaching. And so it was very, um, it was very validating. And, uh, but I, I think what I'm also trying to say is there's a way in which, you know, a letter of recommendation is also... Um, although it's someone doing you a favor, it's also something that you've earned. Or one way to frame it, these things are multidimensional, I suppose, but one way to frame it is that it's also something that you've earned, meaning, you know, uh, a, a writing letters of recommendation is part of a professor's job, and for those students who do exceptionally well, you know, it's, you know, they've earned it or something. I, I can't quite think of the word I'm trying to say, but maybe you know, maybe maybe you understand what I'm going for here. So... You know, I guess what I'm saying is I'm sort of following up with these people kind of acting like, uh, you know, I feel like this kind of um, sycophant or something like bowing at the knees of the master and, you know, like not turning my back to the emperor, but just sort of constantly uh, kowtow. Is it koto or, or kowtow? I can't remember. But you're like genuflecting and saying, oh, excuse me, oh, sovereign one. But, you know, so. Um, but yeah. So I think those are just about done. I have uh, one where the person reported that they sent them in. I have one other person who I think will, well, maybe by now they have um, completed them or will turn them in today. But by, you know, this time tomorrow, I will have my graduation application submitted. And then I really don't know what I'm going to do. I really don't know what I'm going to do for like the next three weeks. I mean, I've, I've pretty much watched all the movies that I want to watch recently. I mean, I don't, I, I guess we sort of talked through Quentin Tarantino uh, at the end of the, another entry recently. Maybe I ran out of time. Or actually, I think that was David Fincher. But yeah, I watched a fair amount of David Fincher. I basically rewatched all of Quentin Tarantino's movies over the last like two weeks. Everything. Not in sequence, but um, I, I rewatched, yeah, all of his movies. 
um, at least the ones that he uh, directed. And I, I have seen True Romance many, many times, and I know he wrote Natural Born Killers, uh, which I've seen many times. But yeah, I basically rewatched everything from Reservoir Dogs to uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And it's sort of interesting um, because I have also rewatched a couple Christopher Nolan movies recently. And um, Quentin Tarantino's, you know, his early movies, I would say, are kind of my perennial favorites. And I think that's true of artists in general. We just kind of like their juvenilia. Like we like, you know, when an artist jumps out of the box, usually there's just something distinctive and, and it's, a, it's a type of confidence. I, I don't know how to word it. I bet Quentin Tarantino would actually be better at describing this phenomenon himself. But there's something about an artist's early work, especially, that just... It's weird because even their latter movies, even if they have better production value and even if they're categorically better movies, it's interesting to go go back and watch their early stuff and you see it actually has a kind of prototypical example of everything that they will continue to explore for the remainder of their career. Um, uh, like uh, I was watching, uh, uh, actually not recently, but I was watching, uh, when I think about Memento, I think it's interesting that that movie kind of has everything that latter Christopher Nolan movies have as well, where it deals with kind of a uh, multiple timelines or, or a unique timeline and just kind of how the past and the future sort of connect. And uh, there's always some kind of revelation with the temporal order where something is revealed that either happened earlier or somebody is seeing, you know, in, they're seeing it in the past, but it's from the future or that kind of shit. And... Uh, yeah, it's just kind of interesting because, you know, artists don't know what direction they're headed in. You know, it's very easy in retrospect to sort of, or like I think, I always quote this thing that I think it was Keith, I heard Keith Richards say, but he's like, uh, or I, I sort of added my own element. My element is like, you know, like the living experience of life, the living experience of your life is just like feeling your way forward in the dark. But he added this thing where he said, but in hindsight, it, everything looks like a finely crafted novel. And uh, I think we do the same thing when we sort of evaluate filmmakers' outputs. Um, but it is interesting to watch a movie like Memento and say that it kind of has everything that a movie, even like Oppenheimer, which I rewatched the other night. Or maybe it could have even been last night. But I will say my fondness, and I think this is true of Quentin Tarantino, is even though you look at films like um, Interstellar and uh, Oppenheimer, they are bigger films. Obviously, they have bigger budgets. They're more of a cinematic accomplishment in a lot of ways. They also have greater defects. You know, it's like what Oppenheimer accomplishes in scope, you actually lose heart, you know? Like when I watch, and this is true of Quentin Tarantino as well, but when I watch their later films, it just feels to me like every actor is aware that they're in a Christopher Nolan movie. And especially a movie like Oppenheimer, which is fine. I saw it in theaters actually when I was in Taiwan. And it was good when I watched it and rewatching it. It's, it's good. But it's also overlong and the plot is incredibly convoluted. And this is true of all of Christopher Nolan's latter movies as well. But so much has to be accomplished in each, in each scene that you really lose heart and character development. I mean, characters are so burdened with the need to, you know, provide expositional information. And a lot of the dialogue is very kind of uh, forced. And it also feels a little calculated. You know, um, filmmaker and novelists do this too, but filmmakers do it especially. And it's more glaring because a novel lasts, you know, many, many hours. But a movie will only last two hours, so it's very weird. You'll have these kind of moments where characters will meet in the beginning and a character will say something. And then, of course, by the end of the film, they'll say, it's like you once said. And they'll like quote what the, the person said. And it's supposed to be this revelation. Oh, look how this thing was planted in the beginning of the film and it's being repurposed in this moment. But it's like as an audience, we see those things coming. Like we've seen enough movies that we kind of know that kind of pressured or we know when characters are speaking in italics. And I don't mean emotively, I mean structurally and thematically. Like people who watch movies in this way, we know when characters are kind of speaking, not because it's relevant to the dramatic moment, but because it serves some kind of conceptual thematic slash plot point that 
needs to be implanted in our brain now and will be referenced again later in the film. So there's a lot of those types of seams, uh, I mean like sewing seams, those kind of um, indications of structure that I see in like latter Christopher Nolan movies. Um, and I have, it does kind of take away, you know? And, I, uh, you know, when I think I, I've been watching some Martin Scorsese movies, too, and I think it's it, it's all predicated on, like, you know, what was the big movie that the filmmaker made last? But I think I was talking about Killers of the Flower Moon. And again, although that's a technically great movie, like if you go on YouTube, there's so many people who talk about why the cinematography and why the imaging and why it's, you know, on a on a cinematic filmmaking level, it is a great film. And yet when you watch it, you just feel like, I just don't feel like it had to be that long. I have to admit the female lead in that film, although it's great that they found uh, an indigenous person to like play that role and to like, you know, uh, perform at that level. It's still not great, you know, as an audience member. It is kind of distracting. You do feel, it's very clear that that actress is not operating at quite the level that the others, that the other actors are. And it is, you know, it does kind of take you out of the film a little bit. Um, other, like, worse examples of that are with other great filmmakers. I talk about Paul Dano's performance in There Will Be Blood a lot. It That's just the way it works. And also Leonardo DiCaprio is a little jarring in, um, in uh, Killers of the Flower Moon as well. I was talking to my brother about it. And <laughs> I don't know, he made a joke, like, Leonardo DiCaprio's teeth need to get, like, a Best Supporting Actor award or something like that. But... Uh, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio is one of these actors who he kind of does the same thing in every movie. And I think I may have mentioned in passing that I watched Django Unchained recently. And that's another film. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of pinballing around here. But maybe one thing that I, you know, having watched, rewatched a lot of movies of Quentin Tarantino recently, which I've seen already seen a few times or many times, some of them, I have a greater appreciation for them the more I watch them. And uh, Inglorious Bastards was always a standout for me as a movie that had some good scenes, but never really worked for me as a whole movie. And I admit, I enjoyed it a lot more now. And I, I'm, I, it was clear to me at the time, but I, I think even more so now. Christoph Waltz's character is one of the best villains in cinematic history in that movie. Um, the only... And it's, it's also a very well-structured movie. I mean, rewatching all of his films, you just realize how brilliant the structure of his movies are. And even though, like Christopher Nolan, he works with these kind of punctuated timelines. I mean, very, I, other than Reservoir Dogs, I'm trying to think of, and Jackie Brown, other than those two movies, I don't know if there's any other Quentin Tarantino movie that's totally, well, I guess Django Unchained. All right, so and the list is getting longer. But out of nine movies he's made, I think only three are told in a linear fashion. You know, I rewatched Kill Bill recently. The first one is a is a is a very good movie. The second one I think is not as great, although there are some incredible scenes in that movie. I don't think Kill Bill Volume Two. I don't I don't really experience it as a great film. It might be the weakest in his output, honestly. I think people will be divided over Hateful Eight, but I still think that that's a great movie. I actually, as I was watching it this time, I was thinking Hateful Eight should be a play. Like I don't think other than Reservoir Dogs. It's one of the, it, 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 it's, you know, I, I, obviously the, the sort of exposition, they're in a carriage and there's some travel, but that could be accomplished on stage in a creative way. The entirety of the movie takes place in a single space that looks like a stage set. So it would be very interesting to see that thing kind of adapted for the stage. I mean, Quentin Tarantino has said he's only going to make one more film. And when I look online, I see that the movie that is tentatively titled, it may change, but it's called The Movie Critic. Um, so that's going to be exciting. But I also don't think Christopher, or sorry, I, I don't think Quentin Tarantino will retire from film, filmmaking completely. But if he's looking for other creative outlets, I could see Quentin Tarantino doing more episodic stuff for streaming services. I think that's probably likely for his future. But I also think, you know, he novelized his film one, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You can, it's, an, he, made it, he made its own novelization, which I haven't read, but you can find. Um, so it seems like uh, he's looking, he has, he's capable and has interest in other creative outlets. Uh, I think adapting The Hateful Eight for the stage would be very, very cool. That's something I would definitely pay to go see. Um, but yeah, I think I lost the plot on what I was talking about. Maybe reevaluating his movies. Um, I think I was just saying that Inglorious Bastards was much better the second time. Um, although the weakest part of the film is actually the plot 
point that kind of holds everything together, which is the kind of the preparation for showing the film at the theater. Like that all kind of needed to happen, but there's something about that the that that plot line that is just not very engaging for me. The rest of the movie is far more interesting. Christoph Waltz and the the sort of Nazi hunters, I forget what they call themselves. But that's also another example where Brad Pitt, the lead in that film, is noticeably bad. His accent's not very good. He just seems like he tried his best, but it's 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 not the best fit for him. And it's kind of interesting because uh you know, a lot of these directors, a lot of their latter movies turn into celebrity, I call them celebrity clusterfucks. Um, that is so apparent to me with Oppenheimer. Although there is some cool casting, like Robert Downey Jr. is is perfect and Killian Murphy is great in that role. Um, every single scene essentially introduces a new character in Oppenheimer. And every single person is kind of like a cool actor. And it's just, it really bumps me like the actor who played um freddie mercury in queen i forget his name he was also a villain in one of the uh, mission impossible movies like he pops up and you're it's kind of jarring and uh you have all these major actors casey affleck they're placed in these minor roles and it's just it's kind of bizarre especially for someone like i mean in 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 earlier tarantino he was like the master of finding people either old actors that were considered washed up or finding people that you'd never seen before and uh, and just doing an incredible job with casting. And I feel like his latter movies are just, have kind of slid into this kind of celebrity clusterfuck zone. And, um, you know, you watch a movie like Django Unchained, and I think that's probably a perfectly casted movie. And it's probably, you know, I, I was saying a moment ago that Leonardo DiCaprio kind of always does the same thing. I think Django Unchained is one of the few movies that I've seen him in where he really swings for the fences and tries to do something completely different. And I actually think for an actor like Leonardo DiCaprio, who's like an A-list, kind of one of the last of the kind of great, the legitimate movie stars that we had when I was growing up, it's kind of a really brave move to play like a slave master who says the N-word about a thousand times. And, uh, you know, he's normally the hero in movies. And so it's kind of an interesting um, uh, against type for him. But... Um, But yeah, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, I think this is like the third or fourth time that I've seen it when I rewatched it. And uh, it's good. Uh, I think Brad Pitt, actually, ironically, although he's kind of a weak link in Inglorious Bastards, I think in a way he's kind of the best part uh, of, um, uh, of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Although I have to admit, there's a whole scene in there that should have been cut. And actually, this is true of Django Unchained. So Django Unchained, there's this scene with Jonah Hill where he plays like this KKK member. And there's this kind of comedic exchange between him and the other people where they're kind of arguing about the hoods that they're wearing and how the holes in them aren't sufficient. And it's this kind of comedic scene that is just kind of, just feels like it's not from the same movie. It's it's an interesting scene, and I know why it was written, but it, I, I was just, as I was watching it, I go, this whole thing should have been cut. And after seeing... Uh, once Upon a Time in Hollywood a couple times, I feel the exact same way about the highly controversial Bruce Lee scene where Brad Pitt gets in a fight with the actor who's playing Bruce Lee. And although that was a big deal because, you know, it was this was kind of in the, in the, uh, in the zeitgeist of stop Asian hate and stuff and people sort of saw it as like a sort of gross stereotype and in some ways a misrepresentation of Bruce Lee, uh, my objection is not that at all. I just think it's not a good scene. And it, it just feels like it's from another movie. And it also does this thing when I talk about like the sort of Quentin Tarantino celebrity clusterfuck casting that's kind of happening. Although in Death Proof, Zoe Bell, who was the stunt double for Uma Thurman in Kill Bill, you know, Quentin Tarantino cast her as like a speaking actress in Death Proof because he needed someone not only to have dialogue, but to be able to ride on the hood of a car. And he wanted to use the same actress for the types of shots. He didn't want to like maybe cast Uma Thurman in that role, but need a stunt actress. He said, I need a stunt actress who can act so that I can actually get the same person on the hood of the car. So he cast Zoe Bell, which was very strong because she's exceptional in that movie. She is not good in every other movie that she's appeared in for Quentin Tarantino. Like she pops up in Django Unchained and she's just kind of stands out like a sore thumb. And she also pops up in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And she's like not good in that. And unfortunately, like, her bad performance kind of pulls everyone else down. Like Kurt Russell has some fine moments in the movie of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, 
But that whole exchange, like, it just, it makes Brad Pitt look bad. You know, that whole sequence with Bruce Lee just should have been cut. They should have found another way to get Brad Pitt kicked off the set or whatever needed to happen in that scene. Um, And I guess it's strange for me, too, because I think about this in terms of budget. Like, Martin Scorsese movies, like, all of them are just epic length now. Like, since the Irish, it's like The Irishman is, like, three hours. Killers of the Flower Moon is, like, three hours and 45 minutes. And you just think, just from a... You know, these are not new filmmakers, so they know quality. And it's like, you know, it just, yeah, it just, it would have been a much better film had we sort of cut this out. And, um, I mean, I feel the same way about Tenet for Christopher Nolan, which is such a compelling and interesting movie. It's just, not only is it, like, incredibly difficult to follow, one of the things that makes it nearly impossible to understand is the highly convoluted plot. Like, there's so many great set pieces in that film where you see how this element of time is working out, but I just have to believe it could have been done in a more intelligent way where audiences understood what the hell was going on. Um, there's this whole plot point in there with the... I forget what they call her, but she's I think she's like the Indian woman when they go to India and they sort of go thinking they're going to capture a guy and it turns out this woman is actually uh, the ringleader of this crime organization who sort of plays a role later in the film. But it's like that whole plot point needed to be cut out because it just sort of diluted the story. And um, yeah, but anyway, I think I've sort of talked about uh, Tenet at length uh, in other entries, so I won't go down that road. Um, but um, yeah, actually, there's a lot of movies that are kind of hyped now that I haven't seen. Poor Things is a movie that... Actually, have the Academy Awards already happened? I know it's nominated for, excuse me, for a bunch of stuff, but... I don't know if, um, I don't know if, uh, yeah, I don't know if the awards have already been, I think the Golden Globes already happened, but I don't know if the Academy Awards have happened. Is it kind of funny that, like, when, at least when I was a kid, like, the Academy Awards or, hell, even the MTV Music Video Awards was something that you were aware of. Like, that was an event. And now we live in a time where our attention is so, uh, it's just pulled in a thousand different directions. I, hell, I've been watching fucking YouTube travel videos <laughs> for the last couple of weeks. And, uh... And watching old movies, movies I've already watched, it's like I have no idea what's going on in the zeitgeist. I have no idea about anything new that's coming out. That's either a sign of me getting old, which I'm sure that's certainly part of it, or it's a sign of the times that we live in, where we're all, uh, you know... You know, and it sort of reminds me of that kind of trope that, like, you know, we thought that the internet was going to bring us together, but if anything, it's kind of driven us more into our niches into our little enclaves of our own personal interests. And, um, yeah, that's definitely, th- definitely true of popular culture. But actually, I haven't, I haven't seen poor things, but I was also thinking recently, as I was sort of uh, cutting down this tree with my neighbor, you know, one of the small talk things that I think we all do is just sort of ask, hey, have you seen anything interesting? And he had actually seen poor things and said it was very good. But I was sort of thinking it's kind of interesting to see what comes, like, it's interesting to see who becomes a superstar, which is like Emma Stone is either nominated, may have already won an Oscar for Best Actress in this movie. And it's like, for me, I remember Emma Stone's first movie for me, I assume it was her first film, was Superbad, where she's just like the love interest of Jonah Hill. And it's just insane to think, I mean, the other counterexample to this is Paul Dano. Uh, Emma Stone, I think, is a very good actress. Um, Paul Dano, I'm less, I actually find him pretty confounding as as an actor. I don't want to, besmirch the guy his career but I admit everything he's done I find him to be a little bit awkward uh the best performance he's ever given I think is in uh Prisoners and it's because he doesn't speak he's able to sort of exude the creepiness or the weirdness that I think everybody casts him for but his like even um I saw the Batman uh semi I rewatched the Batman semi recently and even though again that's a beautiful film I don't think it's a great movie overall but like Paul Dano is just like a he's just like a not good I, I I you know people cast him in these super ambitious roles and I just always feels like he I always feel like he falls short but the reason I'm thinking about him in relationship to Emma Stone is Paul Dano his first movie as far as I know was the girl next door where he's just like the nerdy friend and it's just so bizarre to see where people end up like Emma Stone was this kind of minor character uh it's just weird to think how the tides of fortune uh turn in such a way where these people who sort of start off and they play these like small minor roles turn into these major movie stars. 
I mean, when you think about like Philip Seymour Hoffman comes to mind in this regard, which is like, I don't think it was his first movie, but it was definitely uh, maybe an establishing role for him or an industry making role for him was he was in Twister. You all know that movie? Um, I think in, I mean, I, maybe he had done some serious movies like in a short, 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 shortly after that. But it was like he was like the Zoftic kind of dude in Twister who was just supposed to be kind of a laugh off role. I think he did some good stuff with that if you rewatch that movie. But then the other thing that people forget is the movie Along Came Polly with Ben Stiller and Jennifer Aniston where he's like the nerdy best friend. And actually, in the same way that American Pie introduced the word MILF to popular culture, that movie, the, th the only thing I remember that movie for is two things. One, the scene where, I think it happened, well, do they do the Dumb and Dumber thing where, Dumb and Dumber has this famous scene where, is it Jeff Daniels? Yeah, it's Jeff Daniels. I always, there's a, like Anthony Hopkins and um, Anthony Hopper, is that who it is? Dennis Hopper, Dan like I always get Anthony Hopkins and Dennis Hopper confused and I can never summon their names. And it's the same thing with Jeff Bridges and Jeff Daniels. But Jeff Daniels is in Dumb and Dumber and it's one of the best scenes in film history where he, uh, he gets, uh, Jim Carrey sort of feeds him the laxatives before he goes on his date and he has this sort of eruptive moment at this girl's sort of ski lodge and they're about to go on a date and she sort of knocks on the door and says, I hope you're not using the toilet, it's broken. And, you know, when that movie came out, that was just like, it was almost equivalent to the, there's something about Mary's scene where she sort of wipes the, you know, I'm trying to think of a better word than uh, the ejaculate. <laughs> she wipes Ben Stiller's ejaculate into her hair. Um, that was like a, you know, at the time, that was just un unheard of raunch. That was just raunchy beyond belief. And that scene in Dumb and Dumber was, incredibly relatable for everybody who watched it and everybody's worst nightmare and, and nothing like that had ever been put on film before. Um, but why am I talking about that? Uh, I was talking about Philip Seymour Happen. Yes, and things that they introduced. Yeah, in the same way that American Pie introduced the concept of MILF, which became a sort of common parlance, the first time I ever heard the word sharded, you know, he's like, I, and because Ben Stiller was like, you, he's like, dude, we got to go. I just sharded. And he's like, what? And he goes, I tried to fart and a little bit of shit came out. <laughs> it's like, I think that that was that introduction of that word into the American parlance is shart. Was uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman in Along Came Polly. But uh, lo and behold, Philip Seymour Hoffman obviously went on to have a great career. And actually, now that I'm just sort of talking shit about major film directors and people that I love, I was talking about Paul Dano's poor performance in There Will Be Blood, even though it is still one of the best movies I don't, maybe of all time, certainly in the last like 25 years or something like that, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis sort of takes that movie into the stratosphere. And even Paul Dano's, I mean, every single frame of that movie that he's in is like, he is not good in it. It can't really deter from that movie being great. Another movie that I've, I'm very ambivalent about is The Master from Paul Thomas Anderson, which I've seen it a few times, maybe four or five times or something like that. And again, it's a great film, but of Paul Thomas Anderson's latter films, it's, it has to be one of the weakest, other than um, um, Licorice Pizza, which I don't even know if a lot of people saw. That's a clearly minor entry. And also, I forgot about this one too, Inherent Vice are two kind of, you know, to me, they just seem like minor entries in his uh, latter films, which are, um, I mean, all, all of his movies are great, but I admit Inherent Vice and Licorice Pizza are kind of, yeah, strange entries into his output. But Philip Seymour Hoffman in The Master, I don't know um, if he was like using drugs again at that point. Obviously, he would go on to die of an overdose. I don't know if he had relapsed by that point, but there's something um, especially off about Philip Seymour Hoffman in that movie, which is when I watch Philip Seymour Hoffman in The Master, I see him, to me, I don't think he knows what movie he's in. Um, I think that that movie... And maybe it's just Philip Seymour Hoffman's performance that kind of does this for me. But I find that movie in general to be kind of opaque and not very clear. Um, it's, you know, it's ostensibly about the founding of a, of a Scientology-like religion. But what it, that's kind of the backdrop. What it really is is a character study of Joaquin Phoenix. But even then, it's that, I find that movie to be a little... I'm not really sure what that movie is about because some of like the climactic moments are kind of centered around this relationship with Philip Seymour Hoffman and Joaquin Phoenix. And Joaquin Phoenix is fucking incredible in that movie. 
But I have to admit, I really don't think there's really any chemistry between him and Philip Seymour Hoffman. And I think it's because Philip Seymour Hoffman didn't really know what to do with that character. You know, there's these, moment, there's these moments where they're supposed to be bonding and there's supposed to be some kind of deep tie in their relationship that kind of like, you know, culminates in the film when they kind of like separate from each other. And I, it, all that stuff kind of falls flat because every scene that Philip Seymour Hoffman is in, I just, I feel like he's not really sure what he's doing. He's kind of reaching for what he knows, but it's not a fully realized character. I feel like he's just kind of walking through that movie a little bit. So that's another example where, you know, despite, a, you know, a major entry in a filmmaker's latter career where there's just this kind of confounding casting choice. Or I should put it this way. Philip Seymour Hoffman's is, per, is, I don't know, I, I think there's a personal problem. Or maybe it's just not everybody, they can't all be home runs. Philip Seymour Hoffman was not miscast. It's, I just think it's a, it's a, it's a sort of a, um, surprisingly poor performance. Whereas I find Paul Dano's performance kind of typically bad. Um, or typically under par, I think uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman is just kind of confusing. He's confusingly bad in that movie. I'll put it that way. Um, but yeah, damn, I don't know. We're kind of jumping around my thoughts on casting and all that sort of shit, but where is that going to go? I guess we'll see if all this really means anything when I start vlogging, right? And we'll see if I can uh, sort of shit out some anything uh, cinematically approaching anything like this, right? But anyway, we still got about, I don't know, eight or so minutes here, and I don't know what we're going to talk about. Oh, creative stuff. Yeah, I mentioned therapy. Maybe I'll end on this. I guess I feel bad talking about this because, um, one, I, well, I just feel uncomfortable talking about it, and you'll kind of see why. It actually sort of feeds into, into the subject of therapy itself. But I had this moment in therapy where I was talking about... Um, what was it? I was talking about extending myself for somebody. But basically, there's, you know, I, I sort of meet... Um, um, what's the word? What do you call it? Remotely with my therapist. There was, for a couple of years during COVID, we were just talking over the phone. Now we're sort of connecting over video. And there's been a couple of moments that have just been kind of challenging for me, which is she's, uh, you know, she's in her home and she has this cat. And every once in a while it would like hop in front of the camera and it would just kind of stay there and nothing was really being done about it. And it was just kind of off-putting for me because I'm trying to connect. I'm, I'm speaking with this person and it's, it's just not clear to me why we're not moving the cat or something like that. Um, so it's just difficult for me to connect in those moments. And then also sometimes, uh, like maybe once a month or every other week, I'm not sure, but like the cleaning people <laughs> will show up during our session and it's just like, a, it kind of punctuates the session, which is fine. I understand that we all live our lives and we're trying to make this, um, remote stuff work for each other, but it was, you know, it felt like a little bit of an intrusion on our time. Now I've been kind of dealing with this in silence and, um, I'm meeting with them tomorrow, so I'll bring this up. I can't remember, what, I honestly can't remember what I was talking about, but I was talking about, maybe I was talking about like not having, let me, I can think through this. I was talking about kind of twiddling my thumbs, not really having stuff to do, feeling a little frustrated, uh, maybe a little down in the dumps because of the weather, and I was talking about extending myself. Maybe it had something to do with the recommendation letters. I can't remember what it is, but in that very moment, the cleaning people showed up. And it was just one of those moments where it was just very clear to me that what I was talking about was exactly what I was experiencing and feeling in that moment where I was, I felt like I had a legitimate frustration, which is like, hey, this is my therapy session. This is time that I'm paying for. And I am try, I try to be accommodating, but I, you're, I'm also being put in a position where I'm having to advocate for myself and kind of stand up for myself, which is one, that's just hard for me to do. But it's also easy for me to feel resentful in those moments too, because I'm also sitting across from someone who in some ways, I don't want to say more than anyone. I mean, hopefully you have relationships in your life where people are the same way, but are supposed to be attuned to you and kind of know who you are and kind of anticipate your feelings or something like that. Like, that's just kind of what I'm looking for in my life in general. And I have to admit, I, it's again, this is just how I was feeling in that moment. My therapist is great. We've been together for many, 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 many years, like, you know, 12, 13, 14 years. I don't even know how long now. And they consistently surprise me with how great they are and, and how validating and, and how well they know me despite, you know, I think I'm this uh, uh, 
Well, this is a perfect example. I think I like mask my feelings and in, in, in feelings like this, I just sort of like swallow my frustration, but I kind of got real quiet and I was really kind of debating in my mind like whether I should say something, but that was also making me feel kind of vulnerable and like a little resentful because now I essentially was one needing to talk about something else, but now I feel like I've been diverted and, and all that sort of stuff. And I, I just sort of went into it and I said, well, actually I was feeling this way. Like in that moment I was talking about how I was dealing with this thing and, and yet the cleaning people showed up and it made me very frustrated. And I, 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 we don't need to go into all the details, but what it brought up is this idea um, where my, th I, I came up to this idea where like, yeah, I, I've been feeling this way for a long time and I just haven't said it and it's been something I've been sitting with. And my therapist was just kind of probing that. Like, well, why is that? Like, why haven't you brought it up? And you know, it, I think some of it goes into the power dynamic therapy and sometimes, at least the way that she was framing it, I don't know that I see it this way, but sometimes people in therapy feel like they can't criticize the therapist or something like that. For me, I sort of experienced it more like I'm trying to be accommodating, I'm whatever. Really the core of it is this hard for me to sort of stand up for myself. Um, but uh, I was going for this idea of like, again, I don't know how it was worded exactly, but the idea that I've never like criticized my therapist, and I, criticize is not the right word, but I've never raised objections to my therapist. And we've been together forever. And I, and she's, when I sort of brought it up, I just said like, have you, have you noticed that? And she was like, absolutely. <laughs> and I sort of asked like, well, is it, is it more common for people to like raise their frustrations or whatever in therapy? And uh, the obvious answer is it varies. There are some people who are just, uh, their entire therapeutic relationship is adversarial. Um, but the idea is that there's a happy medium probably to be found somewhere, which is like any relationship. If you're with a therapist for over a decade, inevitably they're going to do things that annoy you or they're going to do things that are bothersome to you. And just in the course of life, it's natural for those things to come up. And when they don't come up, um, it probably, you know, you can never know for sure, but it probably suggests that on some level, somebody's repressing their feelings. Now, my challenge to that was that, you know, the other uniqueness of the therapeutic relationship is that's not necessarily a two-way street, right? Like if we were talking about a romantic relationship, where if you're like, oh, these people have to, be if, if you met someone who was in a, ro a romantic relationship and said, we've been together for 14 years and we've never fought. You know, I'm not saying it can't happen, but I'm saying it probably, you know, more people would think, oh, something's wrong. <laughs> you know, few, I mean, people might say, oh, that's great, but I think most people would know, like, oh, that means something's not being talked about. Like, there's resentment festering somewhere. Um, but I guess I was saying, like, I thought I was kind of doing my therapist a favor by overlooking these minor inconveniences because I also know it's not a two-way street. Like, um, and maybe it has to do with the sort of power dynamic of money or something like that. But it's not like it's, a, you know, my therapist can't just sort of stop and interrupt me and let me know that something I'm doing is annoying them. At least that's the way I sort of think about it and frame it. And I think that that's probably true. And, and part of that, I'm drawing on my time as a crisis counselor. There's many people I spoke with. And, the, and you know, if this is a revelation or sounds bad, um, everybody who does this work feels this way. There are some callers that you're incredibly endeared to and you love speaking with them and, um you know, yeah, you're just happy to talk to them. And there are some people who you dread. You see the caller ID and you, you know, uh, kind of just sort of suck it up and, and get through the phone call. And, you know, there are callers who say things that you just, you know, unfortunately, you just, you know, you know that you just don't like this person. <laughs> you can be emotionally available to them. You can support them. But based on who they present themselves to be, you're 100% certain that if you ever ran into this person on the street uh, in a social setting, uh, you would never hang out with this person. You wouldn't even like this person. You vehemently disagree with 99.9% .9 of the things that they say, but you're, you know, engaging with them in a very specific way. So I don't know where I'm going with this, except to say that, yeah, I don't know. I had this sort of interesting moment in therapy where I had to sort of, I don't know, stand up for myself or sort of address something that my therapist was doing that was bothering me that was just made me feel very vulnerable and, uh, and, uh, yeah, I'm not sure how that's relevant anymore, but <clears throat> I'll continue to think about that. I'm sure it was. I'm I'm sure in some circuitous way it was connected to filmmaking, and uh, my life in general recently. But uh, God damn it, if I can't see how now in this moment. But that's that's how this works, right? Again, it's like feeling your way forward in the dark, and it's only in hindsight that it looks like a finely crafted novel. So 
Um, thankfully, we're at the end of our time. I can let myself go and relax and, uh, I don't know, probably watch a movie tonight. Actually, I should exercise. That's what I should do right now. So uh, I'm going to exercise. And, um, yeah, we'll continue to talk as I prepare for my time in Taiwan. And maybe I'll continue exploring the idea of shooting some video, doing a vlogging thing while I'm away. And, um, yeah, otherwise, yeah, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening. Thanks for your time. And ciao for now.